0: As we're moving through Acts today and we're, we're looking at, at Peter coming, people waiting for him in Caesarea. And they're waiting for Peter to come and speak to them. My question for this morning is, what keeps people away from Christianity? Now, this is not a study on election, as we've seen before. Even John MacArthur says how election... And preaching the word go together is a mystery to us. We cannot comprehend it. But God knows how it's done perfectly. So, what keeps people away from Christianity? Christianity and, and by that I mean the church. I've heard uh, non-Christians say that they could be a Christian if it weren't for, you know, Christians. Okay? The, the people sitting in the pew... The church, they say, is full of hypocrites. Well, you know, duh, okay? And it, it really doesn't help the situation when, when some wag says helpfully and there's room for one more. And I've, I've heard that said, okay? Room for one more hypocrite in the pews. And it doesn't matter how true it actually is. It, it's, it's not a, a politic thing to say, now, you know and I know that Christians are open to the charge of hypocrites, but only in a way, only in a way. We preach against sin every day, and we sin every day. 1 John 1, 8-12 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This charge of hypocrisy and this charge of how can you be a Christian and go on sinning has been with us since the beginning of the church. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. The Apostle John was Jesus' best friend on earth. He was called, very tellingly though, the one that Jesus loved. And he recognized that even he who walked and talked... And ate with Jesus was a sinner and in fact sinned every single day. And the Apostle Paul, do you think it was, uh, do you think he was ever called a hypocrite because of his sin? If nobody ever said it to his face and I guess he was just um, trying to get ahead of them on this issue because in Romans 7, 4 through uh, 14 he said, likewise my brothers, you who have so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And he goes on in verse 15 and 20. He brings sin and the law out of the abstract and into his own life. Not some other Christian, not some other guy, not that guy down at the end of the pew who uh, the Christians don't like, but, but to himself, the apostle of Jesus, the spreader ultimately of the faith he says for i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that is good so now it is no longer i who do it but sin that dwells within me for i know not that for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, are you a hypocrite if you preach against sin and yet are a sinner or or are you something else? Just an ordinary man, an ordinary sinner who is trying to live a Christian life and truly means to, to intend to do it. If a Christian, if as a Christian and still yet a sinner like Paul, are you disqualified from preaching because if so, no one could preach. And that, by the way, is actually the critic of Christian's point. No Christian should preach. Because no Christian is perfect. Which brings up another criticism. Christians are sanctimonious. That, that word has been in the news lately. But Christians are sanctimonious. I remember a bumper sticker from the 80s. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, that was a nice attempt, a nice failing attempt at dealing with people who say that Christians think they're better than other people. Okay? Because we sit in the pews, because we worship God, that we think we're better than everybody else. So the bumper sticker says Christians are not perfect, just forgiven the Christian-hating world hears this says, Christians aren't any better than you other schlubs, but God loves us and not you. Okay? And they really do. Or how about this golden oldie from the 70s? Some of you are too too young to uh, remember this, but it was a bumper sticker that says I found it. Okay? And that, that was courtesy of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. And they used to be right at the bottom of the hill here. I knew a lot of the big People in Campus Crusade for Christ. So I will tease them. But they now call themselves crew. I guess they wanted to leave Christ out of it or something. I don't know. But uh, um, in response, I saw a bumper sticker that had a Star of David and the words that I never lost. It. Okay? So, so if the answer to what keeps non-Christians out of the church pews is Christians, then what is it that attracts non-Christians to the church. And paradoxically, it is also Christians. The people sitting in the pews. An authentically lived Christian life is attractive. I've told you before of a friend back in my Christian band days, and so when I make a uh, uh, no worship band on the stage, I'm speaking from experience here, but from my Christian band days, and and, uh, Of a friend who was in it with me for years, who, along with his wife, were pretending to be Christians, and they told me this pretending to be Christians because they equated Christianity with respectability. They wanted the respectability that Christians were afforded. I don't know where they got that idea, but uh, they did. On the flip side, however, is my formerly lifelong friend. Met him in third grade. I've told that many of you all about him. Who um, who has cut off communication with me because my Christian faith is sullying his pure Satanism, and that's what he said. Um, he is a Satanist and a witch, and uh, he can't associate with me because uh, because. Because I'm worse, okay? Honestly. So, we've got, it's been said that no one has ever crossed over to the other side of the street late at night when approached by a group of Christians just leaving a Bible study, okay? That a truly lived Christian life is attractive, People see what goes on in your life. And if you are living the truth, they often want a part of that. With that, let's look at the allure of a Christian life in, in, oh, 36 AD, maybe 40 AD. We're not given the dates on this. I've looked at all of them, and we're not positive what they are. But the life we're looking at today is the life of a hated Roman soldier the centurion Cornelius previously we've read starting chapter 10 verse 1 at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort which by the way were a cohort of archers I didn't share this with you when we were back here they were the Italian they were a bunch of archers they were in Caesarea protecting the Roman government which was centered in Caesarea A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and by people there it means to the Jews, which not everybody did because non-Jews, and he was non-Jew, he was a God-fearer, which meant that he was worshipping the Jewish God, but he was a non-Jew and he did not have to tithe. Uh, That was one of the things... um, and that's one of the reasons the Jews looked down on them is that they did not have to tithe. Anyway, he, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, "Your." Prayers in your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now last week we saw these men find the house of Simon the Tanner and Peter invited them in to spend the night. And what we're covering today is verses 23b through 26, which picks up the account. The next day he, Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And verse 27, which I'll read, goes on, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. But that last verse will cover in more depth next week. So, verse 23b says the next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Next year's Scarb Pastor's Conference is on the chapter, um, chapter 9 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is of free will. And I wish that we had just gone on and covered that because I am so sloppy on. Free will. That I really am looking forward to this to get a better grasp on biblical free will, what it means and what it doesn't. Because in the uh, three and a half verses we're looking at today, both Peter and Cornelius show initiative beyond what their respective visions from God had told them to do. Okay. God gave them both instructions and they went beyond them. In, Peter's, in his vision, Peter is simply told to accompany the men. Cornelius is sent back to, uh, back to Caesarea. Now, was Peter out acting outside of God's will? See, what Peter did was he took six men with him. Now, God didn't say to take six people from six believers from Joppa with him. But Peter went ahead and did that. And we'll see in the next chapter, in chapter 11, that it was important in God's plan that there were six other witnesses to what was about to transpire. Because of the import of what takes place in Cornelius's house, Peter's free will act would be shown to be within God's will. Verse 24 says, And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his friends and close relatives. Now God's vision to Peter had not said anything about administering the word to the relatives and close friends of Cornelius. Cornelius did that on his own. Cornelius had gathered his friends and relatives to hear the word from Peter by himself. Cornelius took the initiative, his free will, if you would, to include them. Was this outside of God's will? Well, we'll see in chapter eleven that this conversion of multiple Gentiles convinced the Jerusalem church that the this provided uh, that this proved that the outpouring of the Spirit on the greater Cornelius clan showed God's acceptance of the Gentiles in his plan. The fact that Cornelius had so many people there and the fact that Peter had brought along six members of the uh, Joppa church to witness this all furthers God's plans even though God had not given that instruction. Verse 25 says... When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, and I would be it would be safe to surmise that never in Peter's life had he been in this position before, okay? Peter was many things, okay, and, and Peter probably is my favorite apostle. I I love Peter. He was brash, he was impetuous. He was a natural leader, they say, but, but given to dramatic gestures. I mean, think of the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, and he draws a sword and lops off the high priest's uh, um, servant's ear. I've seen a, in a commentary the observation that when Jesus called Simon as a disciple and when he called him Peter, changing his name which meant rock, he must have done it with a smile on his face to call Peter the rock. Okay, And they say that the language might back that up. That uh, it was not a joke so much as as a little bit of teasing. Like I say, that detail is not in Scripture but deduced from the word choices used uh, because the fisherman Simon was anything... A rock. However, Peter's Savior knew that, that that's exactly what he would become in the future. But never had anyone bowed down to worship him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as I said before, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Now, why were... Cornelius the centurion invited his family and his close friends to come to hear Peter. Why did they do this? Well, let me tell you something about military men. I happen to be around military officers a lot. They are serious, okay? They're disciplined. They're responsible. When they have a task, they follow through. Cornelius, even 2,000 years ago, was known for these same qualities. Military officers are of a stripe, as I've said before, Cornelius is a centurion. They were not flashy. They were not commandos. They did not head into battle. What they did was they directed their men. They were expected to stand at their post calmly until they were killed. They would not flee. They would not run. Being a centurion this time had a certain uh, social standing. They were not looked down on. They, they, had a, they had a standing in the community that gave them respect from the people. And so you have to look at this and say, here are his friends and his family, and they, on the testimony of Cornelius' life, when Cornelius said, I think you need to hear this man, They come and they attend. It is the quality of Cornelius' life that drew them to figuratively sit in the pews that Peter is going to address. But it brings something up. And when he calls together his two servants, he also calls a, a devout soldier, it says. How many devout soldiers are in the Roman army in 36 AD? Now, now this is something that has intrigued me. Seven times centurions show up in the New Testament. And every time they're shown in a favorable light. Okay? That's really strange because... If you know, and you all sitting here do, know that the Jews were expecting the Savior to come as a military officer, as a a Viking king, as it were, to defeat and throw out the hated Romans, you would expect the Roman soldiers that show up in the New Testament to be shown in a bad light. And every last time, they're shown in a good light. Jesus, in his ministry, is approached by a God-fearing centurion who says to him, my servant is ill and near death and I need you to heal him. And Jesus says to him, I'll come immediately. And the centurion says, I am a man under orders. I say, go there. And my man goes there. And I say, go here. Or come here. And the man comes here. He says, Just give the word and my servant will be healed. That's showing, as Jesus said, the greatest faith he has seen in Israel. So every time these men are shown in a favorable light in the New Testament, and that's very strange. So so again, how common were Christians among the Roman legion? Well, apparently... Soldiers in remote outposts. Like, I mean, Israel was the backwater of the backwater, okay? It was colloquialism. We would call it the armpit of the Roman Empire, okay? Nobody wanted to be there. People were allowed to worship in the foreign outposts how they wanted to. And we see this with Cornelius, and we see this with the centurion that approached Jesus. We don't know definitively about, uh, about the religious inclination of the other five centurions in the Bible, but they all were, if not sympathetic, treated Christians well within their grasp. Once again, how many Romans were Christians? Okay, so it's something I have to look up when that gets into my mind. The oldest Christian church in the Middle East was discovered just in the 1990s in Megidda, Israel okay Megidda is on the plains of Megidda but we call it the plains of Armageddon so the oldest Christian church known to exist in the Middle East is in Megidda it is attached to a Roman fortress, it was a centurion church, it was a Roman soldier church this is from early church history where I was able to find this The small church was created from a back room in the fortress by Christian soldiers stationed there. The fortress served as the military headquarters of the Legio II Triana, or Trajan's Legion, and um, the Ironclad Legion. A mosaic on the floor, and I had a picture of this, it was really beautiful on my computer, and in black and white it didn't look nearly as good, so I didn't bring it to share. But In the mosaic in the floor, there's a circle in the middle of the floor with two fish. Symbol of Christianity. They're not interlocking fish. Uh, They are two fish side by side. And it's pointed out that um, in case some may interpret this as a common symbol and not a Christian symbol, two inscriptions written in Greek are on the mosaic. Okay, So here we have this beautiful mosaic. In the picture I saw, had had the archaeologists. My Satan's Wiccan friend is an archaeologist, so I know a lot about archaeology, uh, since I was around it from third grade up. But they're down there with their little twist rooms, cleaning it off for an obviously staged photo. Um, but the two inscriptions, one of them says the God-loving Akeptus has offered the table to God Jesus Christ as a memorial. That's the first inscription, and I want to point something out at this inscription. There are arguments that Jesus was not worshipped as God until the uh, uh, Roman Catholics entered this. This is from the either the uh, late first century or early second century, and it says the God-loving Akeptus has offered the table to God, Jesus Christ as a memorial. The second inscription says, "Gaianus, also called Porphyrius, a centurion, our brother, has made the pavement at his own expense as an act of liberality. Brutius carried out the work. I, I love Brutius carried out the work, by the way. so It goes on to say, a Christian soldier named Akeptus donated and altered the room. Another Christian soldier named Gainus had, who had risen in rank to become a centurion paid for the mosaic to be done by another soldier named Brutius. Must be a common name. Then there was a legion. The 12th legion. And the 12th legion of the Roman army was known as the Christian legion. And I love this, Okay. A legion is 6,000 men, okay? The 12th legion was known as the Christian legion. Now, there might have been as many as 55 legions, so I'm not saying a huge portion of the Roman army was Christian, but an entire legion was, and were there others attached to those, uh, other legions? We don't know, but there was a Christian legion. Christian, uh, early Christian history then brings up um, Marcus Aurelius, Emperor Marcus Aurelius. And I like Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was the prototype of a philosopher king. He really, really tried to be a good Roman emperor. And that might sound like an oxymoron, but he was concerned with it. We homeschooled our kids and when my oldest daughter was about 10, she had read all the books in the house and she has the eyesight to prove it, you know, that she'd gone through everything. And she said, Dad, I need something to read, you know. And so I reach up on my shelf and I pull down a, a volume of Plato, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. And I said, here, read this and give me a verbal report when you're done. And, you know, a day or two later, she read this whole volume. I said, well, what do you think? And she said, well, Dad, Plato was a pagan. She said, really? Really? A pagan? Okay. Plato's a pagan. She said, Epictetus was a nut. And I, I, I like this verbal report, okay? So far, I'm giving it an eight. She said, but Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was good he was really good he couldn't understand he was so good he couldn't understand the world he was living in and she said dad he had something missing and he didn't know what it was and I said well what was it she said Jesus Christ Marcus Aurelius could not make sense of the world because he did not know Christ now the the problem with Marcus Aurelius was that he was a bad persecutor of Christians. Okay? Uh, And nothing I ever see says that he changed his opinion. Because there were better emperors before Marcus Aurelius towards Christians, and there were worse after. But Marcus Aurelius was not a friend of Christians, so I want to read you something that he had to say. In 174, Marcus Aurelius was stranded in Germany... Without his legions, his personal legions. And he was surrounded by German fighters. And so, and this is from a letter. This is from Marcus Aurelius' epistle to the Roman Senate. Okay, so this is his own writing. And when, when he was stranded, he prayed to the pagan gods to send his legion to deliver him. And he says, but being disregarded by them, that's his pagan gods, okay? It brings to mind the uh, prophets of Baal, you know. uh, Go ahead, calm down, you know. Here, here, do it. uh, To no avail. Anyway, he says, but being disregarded by them, the pagan gods, I summoned those who among us go by the name Christians. And having made inquiry, in his army, I discovered a great number and vast hosts of Christians, and I raged against them, which was by no means becoming. Okay? So, this is an honest fellow writing. And by the way, Marcus Aurelius is not a fabulist. He is not known for telling stories, and he hates Christians. So he says, I raged against them, and it was not becoming of me to have done that. He says, For afterwards, I learned their power. Wherefore, they uh, began the battle not by preparing weapons, nor arms, nor bugles, for such preparation is hateful to them, account of the God they bear about in their conscience. Therefore, it is probable that those whom we suppose to be atheists, because that's what the Romans thought about the Christians, was that they were atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. He says, therefore, it is probable that those whom we suppose to be atheists have God as their ruling power entrenched in their conscience. For having cast themselves on the ground, okay, they went to the ground in prayer, they prayed not only for me, but also for the whole army as it stood, that they might be delivered from the present thirst and famine. For during five days we had got no water because there was none, for we were in the heart of Germany and in the enemy's territory. And simultaneously with their casting themselves on the ground and praying to God, a God of whom I am ignorant, water poured from heaven upon us refreshingly cool, but upon the enemies of Rome a withering hail. And immediately... We recognize the presence of God following on the prayer. A God unconquerable and indestructible. That's from Marcus Aurelius, okay? Who hates Christians. As I say, even seeing this and even reporting this by his own mouth, I do not see that he ever changed. He recognized it. His intellect saw it. His honesty reported it. And yet, if he was not of the elect, he can see all of these things. If he is not chosen by God, he can see all of these things and not respond. Which is what history sort of looks like happened here. The testimony of the Christian life lived well. Amidst a war was evident even to the Christian hating Emperor Marcus Aurelius. I point this out because history notes it from an antagonistic viewpoint, and you know I really like these sources that are coming from antagonistic viewpoints. The, the Roman census, um, as I pointed out, you know, we're always told that the Jews rejected Jesus. Well, of the Jews disappeared from the Roman Empire in 200 years. There is no report on what happened to them, as I've said before. They did not suffer from Roman persecution. In fact, they pushed the Christians out of the synagogues in AD 105 because Christians were causing trouble for them. They did not emigrate to any other port area. They didn't die of disease. What happened to 95% of the Jews in the Roman Empire? Because the Romans' own census shows that they disappeared. There were no more. What happened? Well, we suppose 95% of the Jews became Christian. I love these things from the standpoint not of Christian historians, though I trust them more than even our Jewish historians like Josephus, I trust the Christians more because they were dealing in God's truth. But I preach this history like the history of the, of the Jews because it intrigues me. And it builds me up in understanding of how God works his kingdom in the ever, everyday events of the world. Because a lot of things confuse me. I'm a simple man, but a lot of things confuse me. And seeing what has gone on in the past helps me to understand these things. As we look at our world today and cannot understand how God can allow abominations to continue, just leave it at that, we can look to the past to, uh, to entirely inexplicable and unbelievable ways that he has worked his will through the ages. God alone has truly free will and he uses that constantly for our salvation. And we see, we see in the lives of of hated Romans. We see in the lives of the Christians were despised above all. Everybody hated the Christians. And yet, God has held His plan together down through the ages despite or because of persecutions. It's just amazing. And the history that comes out and the testimony of the ages doesn't make me a believer. But it helps me understand a little bit more. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you sent Peter to, to Caesarea. I'm thankful that you have for 4,000 years said you were going to be the Savior of all nations. That all nations would come to you, Lord, because I'm one of those nations and my family is one of those nations and everyone here is part of one of those nations. Lord, I, I thank you that you have called us to worship you. I have call, I thank you that you have called us to use our minds in your worship to try to understand things that we don't truly understand. How election and preaching and free will and missionary work all work hand in hand. I still don't have it. But you do. And that is all that is really important to me that you have got it under control and no matter how badly I think things are spinning out now they've spun out of control worse through the ages. I just thank you for your saving grace and I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.